Um, we're going we're gonna to jump right in. There's quite a bit of material I'd like to try to get through today. Um, it's good to see everybody, and I'm glad to be able to be here to present this. Uh, last week, we talked about, uh, we started our study of Stephen, and we started by uh, examining who Stephen was, uh, what was going on at that time in the early church. Uh, Christ had been crucified and ascended into heaven. The Holy Spirit had come, and there was this time of great growth in the early church that was occurring in the first part of Acts. Uh, this was a time in Jerusalem as the gospel was being presented uh, and the apostles were facing growing opposition by the high priest and the Sadducees. And that's kind of recounting what was going on at the time in Jerusalem. Um, we had an introduction to Stephen <clears throat> through a dispute that started in the early church. And in Acts 6, we read, uh, it was surrounding the neglect of the Hellenist widows. And you recall the Hellenists were these Greek-speaking Jews from the Dysphoria, these dispersed Jews that were living outside of Israel and had become accustomed uh, to the Greek language and the Greek culture at the time. And from Acts 6, we got an understanding of who Stephen was. This slide uh, contains this, those uh, things that we looked at last week. He was a selfless servant. Stephen was full of faith, the scripture says, as well as full of the Holy Spirit, wisdom, grace, and power. Specifically, uh, he carried a good reputation. He was selected by the people and commissioned by the apostles to serve in the church. He was a preacher and teacher. He he performed miracles through the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, he was likely a Hellenist himself, trustworthy. He was assigned to resolve conflict, a skilled debater, a defender of the faith. We will learn today he was our first martyr, a bridge between those ministries of Peter and Paul, and he was a minister to the foreign Jews, uh, those Hellenists. <clears throat> and that helped to help us get us back into the mindset of who Stephen was. I'm going to... Um, going to share with you a uh, quote from Dr. John MacArthur uh, and uh, on Stephen and, and who he was. I think really summarizes Stephen well, but Dr. MacArthur points out that he was, again, the first martyr, not a deacon, but a servant, not an apostle, but a miracle worker, not a prophet, but a great preacher. He goes on to write, he was a very unique man. He stands between the apostles and the structure of the early church uniquely. The only parallel to him we meet in chapter 8, and that's Philip, who is also named in chapter 6 along with him. He is a transitional personality. The testimony being given to the Jews by Peter and the apostles is soon to be closed, and the testimony to the Gentiles, Gentile world begun by Paul is soon to be opened. Between Peter and Paul, Stephen is like a bridge. He's chosen by Peter and the apostles, and he's martyred at the hands of Paul. He's a transitional man, a bridge. He didn't minister to the Israeli Jews, and he didn't minister to the foreign Gentiles. He ministered to the foreign Jews. Again, a unique, an indication of his, his unique transition. He is a catalyst for the dispersion of the early church. It was because of his martyrdom and, his, and the persecution that was launched at the point of his martyrdom that the believers scattered. And that was the purpose of God in his martyrdom, because Jesus had said, when the Holy Spirit comes, you will be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the world. What was going to send them into Judea? What was going to send them into Samaria? What was going to send them into the world? Not a missionary's mission, but persecution, martyrdom, and the threat of death. And what a great description of Stephen we get here is this transitional man, um, standing between the ministries of Peter and Paul. 
and specifically ministering to these uh, these these uh, dispersed Jews, the Hellenists. We also see that his catalyst, he would be the catalyst for the spreading of the gospel. And as we've examined the scriptures and what, what they've had to say about Stephen, we're really looking at three main points that we can draw some application from. And that is Stephen as an example of Christianity, Stephen as a defender of the faith, and then how God would use Stephen as a tool to accomplish his sovereign will. Now, last week, we talked about the first of these sections, getting to know who Stephen was and understanding his ministry, as we just summarized a moment ago, what, what the example he sets forth as a Christian. And today, we're going to continue this subject, and we're going to look specifically at Stephen's death, or defense of the faith, his death, and the direct impacts of his defense. Throughout both of these days, we've seen how Scripture would... would um, we see how Stephen would play a direct role in Christ's statement just preceding his ascension in Acts 1 through 8, and that is, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. This is Christ's statement just before his ascension into the heavens. So picking up where we left off last week, we're going to be looking at Stephen as a defender of the faith. God has Stephen in this unique role. Stephen is out in front. He's publicly teaching. He's performing miracles. Verse six, six, uh, chapter 6, verse 9 says, he's ministering to the Hellenists. He's ministering to these foreign Jews that had been driven out or removed from Israel, that had been effectively assimilated into the Greek culture and the language. This was his ministry field. This was the same minority group that he had ministered to uh, in Acts chapter six, 6 to resolve the complaint regarding their widows. And now we see him evangelizing to the same group of people. He's preaching in the synagogues of the freedmen. This is likely referring to the descendants of Jewish slaves that were brought to Rome and they were later freed, hence the name freedmen. It's like um, the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians are both from North Africa. They're named in that scripture. And those in Cilicia and Asia, those are Roman provinces in Asia Minor, now Turkey. So those are the groups, the synagogues in Jerusalem of those people he, he was ministering to. Stephen's evangel Stephen is ministering to the Hellenists in their synagogues. And these are likely three different synagogues as their culture and language would be slightly different. But it's really, it, what's clear is that some of the people in these groups rose up and disputed with Stephen. That is, they entered into a formal debate with Stephen about what he was preaching. That is, the resurrection of Christ and the Old Testament evidence that he was the Messiah. So he's ministering to the Hellenist Jews. He's got a group that rises up in dispute with him and starts this debate about what Stephen's preaching. Stephen is a skilled debater. Stephen is full of wisdom, Scripture tells us. And Stephen really makes short work of this argument. In verse 10, we see that they... It says that they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit by which he was speaking. So Stephen made, made short work of this debate, winning the argument. Stephen was well prepared and with the power of the Holy Spirit prevailed. And, he was, and, and the group that was unable to prevail in this group, the opposition resorts to deceit and conspiracy. So they set up false witnesses against Stephen. And in verse 11... They, it says that they secretly instigated men who said that we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. 
These are the allegations against Stephen. Secretly instigating is what the scripture says. This implies the putting of words in someone else's mouth, um, making false suggestions. means they were secretly recruiting false witnesses to spread lies about Stephen, and they were using these false, false witnesses to stir up the people. And as a result, we see that the elders and the scribes seized Stephen. They were charging Stephen with blasphemy against the words of Moses and of God. And specifically, in verses 13 and 14, we see that the charges were that he was teaching, one, that Jesus would destroy the temple, and two, that Jesus would change the customs that that Moses had delivered to them, right, the law. Now, are these allegations false? I mean, didn't Jesus say that the temple would be destroyed? And didn't he change the laws of Moses? Well, they have elements of the truth, but they're really incomplete and misrepresented to appear as blasphemy. Jesus did say the temple would be destroyed, but not at his own hands. That was from Mark chapter 13. And Jesus would go on to say that the temple would be destroyed and rebuilt in three days, but he wasn't talking about a building. He was talking about himself. So misinterpretation or misquoting of of what Stephen and Christ had taught. The second allegation that Stephen or that Jesus would change the custom of Moses is delivered to us. This is really the temporary system of the Mosaic Mosaic law, right? There is this is a natural outcoming of the of the implications of justification of uh, justification by faith and not through the fulfillment of the law, that Christ would ultimately fulfill the law. So, so in some respects, that was correct, but it was incomplete. So this is one of the major parallels that we see between Christ and Stephen, in fact. Both Christ and Stephen were similarly uh, charged with, with blasphemy on, on very similar accounts. And so they see Stephen. These are the accounts. They have these false witnesses. They see Stephen. They bring him before the council. This is the Sanhedrin, and this was really the third of four times that Christ's followers would be drugged before the Sanhedrin, the high court. Um, the, other, the other three were Peter and John in chapter 4, Peter and the apostles in chapter 5, and then we'd see Paul in chapter 22. So it's important to note Stephen's really the only non-apostle that's listed in that group, another indication of his unique position within the early church, right? That's quite an exclusive group to be a member of. He played this role as a bridge between Peter and Paul, remember, and this is another example of that. Well, Stephen hadn't yet responded to the false allegations, and they were all standing around him, and they're, 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 they're gazing at him, the scripture says. They're staring at him intently. And what do they see? His, they see his face was like the face of an angel, is what the scripture says. Stephen's face was glowing with the glory of God. He's standing before the Sanhedrin. His face is glowing from the glory of God. Now, this is really unique, and it's noteworthy because it's similar to Moses in Exodus, chapter 34 and chapter 35, when his skin and his face was shining after he was speaking with God. In Moses' case, this is reflecting the glory of God from being in his physical presence. In the transfiguration, we see that Christ was glowing as he revealed his own glory. In Stephen's case, this is something different. Stephen isn't in the physical presence of God. Stephen isn't God himself. It's not explained further in the text, 
But what is clear is that he's reflecting the physical glory of God. God is choosing to illumine Stephen's face with a visible manifestation of his own glory. I think this is God's testimony to the truth of what Stephen was preaching and the support of Stephen in the face of the allegations that were before him, similar to, to miracles being formed through the power of the Holy Spirit by those preaching God's word that were a, a testimony um, to the truth of what they were doing. Now we see an element of God's glory being revealed in Stephen's face as he's glowing before the Sanhedrin. And what I find even more interesting and kind of alarming is he's doing this before the Sanhedrin, and this is a shocking, it's shockingly similar to that of Moses in Exodus. And Moses was one of the heroes of the Sanhedrin. Remember, Moses is the one, he's accused of blaspheming. And yet here we see a very similar revelation of the glory of God being presented in Stephen's face, just as, as it had done in Moses. And, and it makes no impact on the Sanhedrin. No one stops and says, what's going on? Or maybe there's some truth to these claims that Stephen is presenting. In fact, in Scripture, it doesn't say that they responded at all. And it's not that they didn't see it, because Scripture's clear. It says that all that sat in the council had seen it. Was it an example of their hardened hearts? Were they just unable to respond? Were they too caught up in their own mindset there? Were they wound up in the allegations? Or or did they already have preconceived notions? We don't know. But this brings us... To chapter 7, and this is Stephen's speech as it's titled in my Bible, but it's really more than a speech. This is the longest sermon that's recorded in Acts, and it's one of the most detailed and profound and well-laid-out defenses of the gospel before a Jewish audience. I love this text because it's masterfully tailored to its audience. He starts by building a common ground as he builds the foundation he defends his position using an old, old Testament scriptures, yet he's unapologetically honest and truthful in his condemnation of, of the actions of the Jewish people for rejecting God and condemning Christ. Stephen preaches and defends the truth of the gospel with complete boldness and no regard for his own concern. He carries the same bold delivery that Peter did last week when we looked at Peter's speech before the Sanhedrin. Um, and it's very similar to what we will see Paul speech later. Paul speak later on in Acts. The difference here is that, as a result, this would be Stephen's last opportunity to do so. Peter and Paul would go on to to preach other days. In a society where we're so quick to present a friendly version of the gospel or not want to offend others around us, we can learn something here from Stephen and Peter and Paul, all in this regard. So the high priest turns to Stephen in the midst of the allegations that are before him, and he asks him this. He says, are these things so? Is this true, these allegations that are against you? Stephen's response is immediate, and it's notable. And there's really not a good way to get a full summary of it without actually reading it, and we're going to do that. And I want you all to read along when we get to that section. So I'd appreciate if everyone that has their Bibles, please get them out and and get prepared to read as I read through chapter 7. Before we do so, I do want to give you an idea of how we're going to approach this, because it is a long piece of Scripture, and it's very deep in its meaning. We are going to first take a look at a few points to keep in mind as we read through Stephen's speech. Then we're going to actually read through chapter 7 of Acts. 
We'll follow up by taking a step back and looking at the timeline and progression of what uh, Stephen had said in his speech, and then look specifically at how Stephen's answers, or those of Stephen's answers that were contained in the speech. So how did he answer those allegations, this question of, are these things so, regarding the blasphemy? Stephen's speech, things to keep in mind. Not an exhaustive list, but some things that came to my mind that I thought were important is that Stephen doesn't give a legal defense about the allegations that are before him or even the fact that he's being arrested with really no cause at all. Um, He doesn't give a legal defense. He doesn't give an emotionally-based defense. He doesn't try to appeal to their emotions to to not be in in this position. He builds a bond with his audience through recognizing and agreeing with the history of Israel and their history, and he engages their audience. We're going to see him use lots of terms like our and we and this common ancestry as he builds this consensus and understanding. It's a demonstration of his wisdom. When you see how he recounts the history of Israel and his understanding of the faith and the the redemptive history of Israel and God, it is a tremendous display of his wisdom. It's a reoccurring theme here that God's faithful to his people and his promises, but that Israel hasn't been. And we'll see that in several sections of his speech. They turn to idols, they reject God, they reject God's messengers, and yet God remains faithful. The gospel, right, the Old Testament pointing to the coming of Christ is a constant theme. That answers some of the allegations as well, but it's something to take note of because it's, it's contained within the speech. And finally, remember that as we read this speech, this is Stephen standing alone on trial in the high court who had previously imprisoned, beat, threatened, and almost killed the apostles. This isn't a planned, written-out response. This isn't some apologetics paper that he sat and drafted and redrafted and put together. You know, this is a trial. This is an unrehearsed speech that's delivered on the stand before his accusers, the judge, and the jury. There is no right of due process. So this is is what it is, not a common speech. So standing before the council, please open your Bibles and follow along as I read Acts chapter 7. Standing before the council, this is after his face had shown like that of an angel. He's asked this, Acts chapter 7, and the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The glory of God appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred, and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect that his offspring would be sojourners in the land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nations that they serve, God said God, and after they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac, 
and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his, of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan, and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and, became, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had brought, bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hammer in Shechem. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt. Until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so they would not, they would not be kept alive. At this time Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight, and he was brought up for three months at his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son, and Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was forty years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel, and seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. But they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them. And as they were quarreling, he tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why, why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian where he became the father of two sons. Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and he drew near to look. There came the voice of the Lord, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, and of Isaac, and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge? This man God sent as both a ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush, this man that led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation 
in the wilderness with the angels who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses, who led us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idols and were rejoicing at the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the hosts of heavens. That is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me, did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god Raphan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it in in with Joshua when they disposed of the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built the house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, Heaven is my throne and the earth my footstool. What kind of heaven will you, what kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hands make all of these things? You stiff necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You received the laws delivered by angels and did not keep it. We're going to end there. What a tremendous speech. Remember, Stephen was asked, are these things so? And he was referring to the blasphemy charges against him. Stephen directly answers the high priest's questions, but not in his own words. He doesn't say, no, but you don't understand. My words are being misconstrued or taken the wrong way. He doesn't plead in an attempt to save his own life. He knows that really doesn't carry any weight before the council. So what does he do? He uses the Old Testament scriptures. The scriptures and the history of Israel to answer these questions. And he also uses it as an opportunity to deliver a defense of Christ. Which in turn answers those allegations as well. This is a similar tactic, right, to we see Christ himself used when these allegations or similar allegations were waged against him. When people challenged his authority didn't make excuses. He's pointed back to the Old Testament and let the scriptures speak in his own defense. Before we look at how Stephen answered specifically those allegations against him, I want to take a step back and just walk through the progression of Stephen's speech, the timeline as he's presented it. And it's important because this speech is really dense, right? It packs a lot of history and a lot of theology um, into a, a pretty short chapter. 
And we, we could probably be in chapter 7 for a month and still have plenty to talk about, but this will at least give us an overview of what Stephen is pointing to. As Stephen walks through the history of, of God and Israel through Abraham, Joseph, and Moses, Stephen starts by saying, hear me, listen to me, right? He gets their attention. He calls them brothers and fathers. He doesn't start with an aggressive tone or defense of himself or an adversarial position. He starts with a common bond of being united as part of the nation of Israel. And this is important because as he goes into verses 4 and 7, establishing that God has given the Jewish people great promise and privileges, right? They are God's chosen people, and Stephen acknowledges this. God appeared to our father Abraham, he says, and God would promise Abraham land for his children, even though he had none. So he was promising Abraham a child and offspring as well. God promised to protect Abraham and to judge the nations that would enslave them. He's the heir to a common, they're heir to common ancestry, and they're the foundation of the 12 tribes of Israel, which was sealed with the sign of circumcision from the Lord. So far, there's nothing to argue about. Right? Stephen hasn't said anything controversial. This is history of Israel based in Abraham. This isn't something that the Sadducees would have an argument with. And as he moves forward into his historical account from Abraham into the time of Joseph, he provides a lot of detail, includes the 12 patriarchs that would reject Joseph and sell him into slavery. Joseph was the one that God would protect and use to bless them. It's another example of the nation of Israel rejecting God's chosen leaders. And although there's no argument about the historical recount here, you can see it's getting a little more contentious. Right now there's an allegation that, that they sold Joseph into slavery, which they did, but that they're going against the will of God. They're rejecting God's chosen leaders. God would bless and preserve Joseph, of course, and Stephen acknowledges this. Stephen doesn't provide any time for a response. He moves quickly to Moses, spends quite a bit of time in Moses. Immediately, what does Stephen call Moses? He says he was beautiful in God's sight, verse 20, right? This is, not, this is, this is a quote. It's not literal. It's from Exodus chapter 2, where at Moses' birth, he is called a fine child, or otherwise, it says that he was good. Very similar language as to what we see in the account of creation. It was good. Stephen comes right out of the gate to show his support for Moses and his agreement with the Sadducees when it comes to Moses by calling him beautiful in God's sight. He's charged with blaspheming against Moses in the words of Moses specifically. This is important to show that he's in alignment with Moses. Stephen then recounts Moses' um, recounts Moses's life in three 40-year sections. The first covers his birth to, um, and his life in Pharaoh's court. The second, then, his exile in Midian. And then the third, revolving around the events of the Exodus and the years of Israel's wandering in the wilderness. Stephen's recount of Moses clearly recognizes that God had chosen Moses and would bless Israel through Moses Verse 35 and 36 say that this man that God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. 
this man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and the Red Sea, that God sent as both a ruler and redeemer. Stephen is showing that he agrees with, with their stance on Moses, that he received, Moses had received living oracles to give to us, he says, that Moses... This re, Moses receives God's message and brought it to Israel, to us, he reiterates, and Stephen states, reemphasizing the unity that he has with his accusers. And once establishing that authority as a messenger of God, Stephen starts to turn the tables a little bit. He uses Moses to support the legitimacy of Christ, the Messiah, and he says, this man is the, is the Moses who says to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. In verse 37, specifically speaking of the coming of Christ, they're rejecting the prophecy of the very one that they're accusing Stephen of blaspheming. Stephen would also point out that Moses was in fact rejected by Israel as they turned to idols. Stephen's speech... <coughs> Well, after recounting the history of Abraham, Joseph, and Moses, Stephen would provide the history of the tabernacle, the temple. It's brief, but he's out there, and he established it. Why is this important? Because he's charged with blasphemy against the temple, that the temple would that Christ taught that the temple would be destroyed. He's establishing his knowledge of the temple, his wisdom in the history of the temple, and his understanding of what the temple is for. Stephen's speech is interrupted as, he deliver, as he's delivering his rebuke, which we read at the end of chapter 7. Now, the allegations that Stephen was facing were that he had spoken blasphemy specifically against the words of Moses and God, speaking words against this holy place, the temple and the customs of Moses in the law. Stephen would address these allegations with three main points, themes made throughout his speech, all of which support the position that it wasn't him that was blaspheming God, but it was they, that, he was, that it was them going against Moses in the law, that it wasn't him doing so. And he does so with three points, these three themes. And... The first point that Stephen makes in his defense is that there is and there always has been a progressive revelation in God's plan. God's plan doesn't change, Stephen teaches, but, God, but Stephen shows that God's promises are fulfilled, but we don't always know how they're going to be accomplished. Abraham was the receiver of God's promise, yet it was his great-grandsons that would lead the tribes of Israel and receive the promised land. The amazing fulfillment of Joseph, of Joseph, of God's promise to Israel um, by way of Joseph being sold into slavery to come back and save those that God would have him save, that they would become sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them for 400 years, and that God would then judge the nations that they serve, Egypt and Pharaoh, this was all promised, yet the specifics of how it was fulfilled were unknown at the time, right? This, this notion of progressive revelation, this was all promised. Their deliverance from Egypt through the wilderness, through Moses, and yet subsequent rejection by the people of Moses, 
The tabernacle or the tent of witnesses containing the stone tablets of God's law was built in the wilderness in Moses' time, yet would be replaced by the temple that was constructed by Solomon many years later. We can see this progressive revelation. Even the rejection of God by Israel ended with the fulfillment of God's promises, even though it wasn't their desire or their plan at the time. In fact, if there was a time before they even had the law, there was a time before the law. The fact that the law was given to Moses was itself evidence of the same progressive revelation of God's plan. Stephen's point was that if throughout history God's plan for Israel has been progressively revealed and fulfilled in ways that were likely unanticipated, why would they now consider the temple and the law to be so permanent and reject the scriptures and the prophets that foretell of the coming Christ? So there is and there always has been a progressive revelation in God's plan. Stephen's second point, main theme here in his defense, is that the blessing of God are not confined to the land of Israel and the temple and that they never have been. Stephen recounts that Abraham was called while in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. God was with Joseph and rescued him out of all the afflictions and gave him favor um, and wisdom before Pharaoh. Right? That was in Egypt. It's not in Israel. Moses was commissioned by God in Midian. The law was given to Moses in the desert, not Israel. The tabernacle was built in the desert and brought into Israel by the Jews. The tabernacle itself was physically movable, and it moved with the people. Even the temple was not the sole dwelling place of God. Solomon recognized this when he said, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heavens cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built from first kings. Similarly, the prophet Isaiah writes, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. The temple was to be a place of worship, according to first kings, but it wasn't meant to contain God. How could it have been? The temple was actually built and rebuilt three different times. Using the quote from Isaiah, Stephen's point is that God is greater than the temple, and thus the Jewish leaders were guilty of blaspheming by trying to confine God to it. Stephen's point was also that the temple and tabernacle were not intended to last forever. They pointed to something greater that was yet to come, and that the prophets foretold. And like their forefathers, they had created an idol, right? Not a carven image of a calf, but a building. The temple wasn't a bad thing, and Stephen never says it in a negative context. It was a place of worship, but it wasn't a place to be worshipped. Stephen's third theme or point in his defense is that Israel has a long history of opposing God's plan and God's messengers. Every portion of Stephen's recount of Israel's history is ripe with this. Right? Specifically, Abraham travels to Haran in 2, 4, uh, two and four, instead of going directly to Mesopotamia and the promised land. Joseph, sold by his brothers into slavery in Egypt. Moses is rejected by the Israelites. Who made you a ruler and judge over us, he says. It was also notable that both Joseph and Moses were not accepted into their second until their second appearances, right? Foretelling of Christ, not being accepted by the Israelites until his second coming. Israel even rejected God and turning to idols even after God had delivered them from Egypt through Moses. 
The fathers of Israel had persecuted all of the prophets and killed those who announced the coming of Messiah, the Christ whom this group betrayed and murdered, according to Stephen. It was not Stephen who was blaspheming against the words of God. It was them who had received the law from God and did not keep it, but instead rejected God and his messengers. Was, that was Stephen's point. Stephen's point of defense, they clearly refutes the charges of blaspheming the words of God and Moses by using these very same words to show he's in agreement with them. And in fact, using the scriptures, he effectively indicts those that are accusing him and their ancestors of being themselves idolaters and blasphemers. It also acts as a warning in this sense that there is this progressive revelation of God's plan, that it's not limited to the temple, and that Israel better be careful not to resist God's workings as they had in the past. They're withstanding God's purposes by refusing to see his work in the church and the blessings on the outs- outside the borders of Israel. He's warning them, take heed not to make the same mistakes that your father has ma- fathers have made. After offering these three main points of defense, Stephen gets into his final rebuke. And you can hear and feel the intensifying nature of the speech as he gets in. And you can see the tension in the room. You can almost feel it as, as he's working his way through the history of Israel. He's establishing his wisdom in the scriptures, and he's building this common bond. And he offers this startling rebuke of his accusers and those that he's standing before. His choice, choice of words is intentional, and it's strong, and they're well-established in scripture. He calls them stiff-necked people, stubborn, obstinate, like their fathers. If I called you a stiff-necked person, you probably wouldn't be that offended, right? It doesn't sound like that bad of a thing to be calling somebody. But they were familiar with this term. This is a term that was used by God when he was in a rebuking way when speaking to Moses in the book of Exodus. It says, And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. And therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I may make great nations for you. The Lord used this term, stiff-necked people, in an exceedingly tough context. And Stephen's doing the same thing. It doesn't go unnoticed. He calls them uncircumcised in hearts or ears. This is unclean before God, the uncircumcised Gentiles. Is what he likens them to, a group that, that the Sadducees would, um, would have an issue with and look down upon as, as a, a lower-class group, the Gentiles, because they're not a part of the saved nation. Jeremiah 4 says, it Circumcise yourself to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. It's not the physical circumcision. It's, it's circum- circumcision of the heart. Let my wrath go before you like a file and burn with none that can quench it. Paul would use this same form of, of circumcision of the heart in Romans 2.28 where he says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. He prayed. His praise is not from man, but from God. 
Paul is, Stephen is saying the same thing with fewer words. Paul gives a better explanation here of what he's talking about is circumcision of the heart. It's an unfaithful heart. You always resist the Holy Spirit, he says. They were rejecting the Spirit's messengers and the message. As your fathers did, so do you. Remember that he had just recounted that their fathers had rejected God. They'd rejected Moses and Joseph. They'd turned to idols. And so what is he saying? You're doing the same thing. You are the same. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute, he says. And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one. He's saying that they're in the same boat. They're guilty of the same offenses. You who received the law as delivered by the angels and did not keep it. Well, Stephen's final defense here is that it was him, the Sanhedrin, and his accusers that are the ultimate rejectors of the law in rejecting the God-sent deliverers, and they're, and re- they're rejecting God himself. Right? He's indicting them. The response that he gets... is harsh he's not done speaking there's no conclusion to his speech he doesn't end it he is interrupted he doesn't get the opportunity to their response is immediate they were enraged scripture says they were overcome with rage anger, emotion they didn't respond with scripture or logic they didn't offer an argument they didn't poke holes in Stephen's speech They were overcome with anger. They ground their teeth at him. They gnashed their teeth in anger and frustration. They were acting like wild animals. Stephen is described by Luke here as once again being full of the Holy Spirit. He looks up. He gazes into heaven. And the glory of God in Jesus standing at the right hand of God is what he sees according to verse 55. How does Luke know this? Well, because Stephen says so. In in verse 56, Stephen says, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Stephen now joins Paul, Isaiah, Ezekiel, and John as being one of the very few men on earth seeing or being receiving a vision of God's glory in heaven. He looks up and he can see Christ and he can see God. And he announces it before his accusers, and they don't acknowledge it. They don't respond to Stephen at all. They cry out with a loud voice. They, they stopped their ears, is what Scripture says. They refused to listen, and they rushed together at him. In fact, the hearers were so enraged by what they heard that they killed him. They were full of rage. They had this physical response, grinding their teeth. Their ears were shut. They were not acting rationally, but this was physical manifestation of their frustration and anger. It seems to me very similar to the hardening of hearts that we read about with Pharaoh in Egypt, dealing with God's people, the hardening of hearts in Joshua 11.20, where the Lord had hardened the hearts of those coming to battle Israel, where it says, in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy, but be destroyed, just as the Lord commanded Moses... In that sense, God had ordained this response in order to accomplish a greater purpose. So Stephen's martyred. He's cast out. He's stoned to death. This is a continual stoning. They keep stoning him and stoning him until he is dead. Stephen dies 
praying for himself, but not for saving, but for being received into heaven. He says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit, is what Stephen says. And praying for his adversaries, he's falling to his knees. He cries out in a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Both very strong parallels to what we hear Christ say upon his crucifixion. Although the stoning was a prescribed punishment for blasphemy under the law, according to Leviticus, this was not a formal execution. Don't take it the wrong way. This was an irrational act of mob violence. In fact, the Sanhedrin themselves didn't even have the legal authority to execute without consent of the Roman authority. In John 18, we see this. When Christ is facing his own allegations, Pilate says to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. Pilate doesn't want anything to do with him. And what do they say? They respond to Pilate by saying, The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. Well, if it's not lawful for any put anyone to death, what's going on with Stephen, right? This wasn't the administration of a rightfully handed down punishment for a breaking a law. This was an emotionally driven violence. It's kind of it's somewhat ironic because as you read through Stephen's speech, there were several places of blasphemy and idolaters in the history of Israel. Their own forefathers should have been stoned to death under the same, under the same prescribed punishment for worshiping Moloch and Rephan, as recounted in, in verse 43. So Stephen becomes the first martyr. And what a blessing as he's facing these last moments of his life. He looks up and he can actually see Christ. He can see God. What comfort he must have had at those final moments in his life. Stephen, as we talked about, as a defender of the faith and an example of, of Christianity, is used by God in, a, in, in lots of ways. Um, but there are two that I want to highlight today. We've talked about this, but as just to reiterate, this is a catalyst for launching the gospel into the Gentile world. Stephen's speech had no immediate results. There is no account of someone coming to faith that heard Stephen's speech. As marvelous as it was, there was no one that dropped to their knees, had a change of heart, received the Holy Spirit, became a believer. That wasn't God's purpose in Stephen's speech, but his purpose was a great persecution that would come upon the church. And we read in, in chapter 8, this is kicked off by Stephen's martyrdom, and, and the believers are scattered. They leave Jerusalem. They, they go out into the Gentile world. And this is how the Lord would spread the scripture outside of Jerusalem. As we saw in 8.1 with God's promise, said, you will receive power in the Holy Spirit and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. The church is scattered through these regions of Judea and Samaria and all of Persia because of what happened to Stephen's, the response to Stephen's speech was that great that it started a persecution of the church in Jerusalem. <clears throat> There's a second significant event here that, that really catapulted the spreading of the gospel, and we need to mention it here um, because it's tied into Stephen's life. And if, if we look back at chapter 7 verse 55 we see or verse 58 I'm sorry they say then they cast out 
They cast him out of the city and stoned him, and the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Well, this is the first time we've heard Saul in Scripture, right? We know that he'd ultimately become Paul, the Apostle Paul. Saul was clearly there for Stephen's death. They're laying their garments down at his feet. And in fact, that the garments coming down at his feet and doing so, um, while they were stoning, it showed a level of approval that Stephen, that, of Stephen's death that, that Paul or Saul was ordaining. In fact, in Acts 22.20, Paul himself says, And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. So although scripture doesn't give us an account of everyone at Stephen's speech, it's likely that Saul was there. Although we don't know the full impact of the Stephen stoning had on Paul, Paul clearly recalled it. And after Paul's salvation, I'm sure he reflected on what he'd heard Stephen say. Paul would go on to pen a great deal of inspired scripture and we would be a huge evangelizer to the Gentile world, a missionary, and at some level, God had used Stephen as part of Paul's ministry and a part of Paul's plan or the plan for Paul. These are two of the ways that Stephen had a massive impact on the early church and the spreading of the gospel outside of Jerusalem. There are a couple points I'd like you to take away as we finish up our time here that we can learn in application from Stephen. They're a bit general, but I think they're important. Be bold and unashamed of your faith. I mean, we see how Stephen's attitude of boldness is. He was not ashamed in any way to spread the gospel message, found his ministry area, and he was called to and went out and, and did his work. Be prepared to defend, right? Be prepared with wisdom. Paul didn't defend on emotion or, or secular arguments. He, he argued from Scripture. He argued out of wisdom. Be prepared to make your own defense. Third, count the gospel as more important than yourself. Stephen did. Stephen had no regard for his own life as he went in to give his speech. And finally, be imitators of Christ. Stephen ultimately was an imitator of Christ. That's what we looked at the first day. And the apostles would teach, in fact, Paul would teach, imitate me because I imitate Christ. Right? Stephen is saying the same thing, or Stephen's life reflects the same thing. Stephen was an imitator of Christ. So how, how do I imitate Christ? That can seem like a, like a huge feat. Well, here's a, here's a man who is doing just that, that I can imitate and know that I'm on the right track to imitating Christ. That's what Paul said, and that's what Stephen's life reflected. And as we consider that, I do want to share with you one last thing, and I, and I stole this online from someone um, but this is 10 comparisons between Christ and Stephen. And we've noted a few as we kind of work through Stephen's speech, but I do want to point these out. I'm not going to get into details, but I can provide this to you if you'd like to look at them later. No one could resist their witticism nor their arguments. Secondly, both had false witnesses come against them. The third similarity is that the Pharisees stirred up the people against them in both cases. Both were brought before the council. Both were accused of blasphemy. Both were accused of not keeping the law. Both had association with high priests. Stephen dealt with the same people Jesus did. 
both prayed for God to forgive their killers and devout men buried both Jesus and Stephen. I I know there's a lot more parallels that we can draw between Christ and Stephen, but I thought this was a a good basic outline. With that, uh, pray. Lord, we're thankful for this time for men like Stephen. Um, Lord, we pray that we would be as bold in our faith, bold in our... um, in our delivery, as dedicated in developing the knowledge as Stephen was, and to be faithful servants, really to be to be selfless servants, the model that that Stephen had showed us, putting your kingdom first, your desires first above our own. And Lord, that would be our prayer. May we all um, dwell on this and understand and, and walk away from here uh, inspired. By the word, by your word, and and by uh, the life of Stephen, it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.